Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. It is Friday, August 26, 2011. That means it's Listener Feedback Friday. Today we're going to have your calls on everything and anything related to survival and surviving in the modern world. And remember, if you want to make a call into a show like this, you can pick up your phone and dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. We'll try to get to your calls. I'm working on calls about a month old right now. It tells you how far our backlog is and how long you might expect to wait to hear your call on the air. Um, first up, though, before we get to your calls today, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready-Made Resources. I love Ready-Made Resources because they provide all of the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. Go to their site, point, click, order, and they send them to your house. And if you need it for prepping, they probably have it at Ready-Made Resources. also love them because they're a huge supporter of the show. Bob Griswold there is just an amazing guy. And, of course, this month they're giving away a Rock River Arms custom AR-15 upper in 5.56 millimeter. That is valued at $890. We ha- you have between now and September 22nd to enter that contest. Some of you had some problems with the form when you filled it out, saying you were already in the contest. I think they had the same list they were using for their last contest, and they only let you in once and what have you. All of the errors have been fixed. You should be able to enter the contest now. Uh, there will be a link in today's show notes. Make sure you take a shot at winning that. Uh, $890 custom AR upper. People have been asking in California about California requirements and all. It is not a firearm. It is only an upper. Only when you put it on a lower does it become a firearm. So it has no problems being shipped to California. Anywhere in the United States, you can win this, and we can ship it directly to your house. What you do with it afterward is your business and subject to local laws. But again, try to win the AR and check out ready-made resources. Next up today, if you do win the AR, or if you have an AR, if you have weapons at all, If you don't have ammo, then what you have is a really expensive club. That's why I think you need to get to BulkAmmo.com today and make sure you have enough ammo in the calibers of the the uh, of the weapons that you have in your home. I mean, what good is an $1,100 AR-15 if you only have 20 rounds of ammunition? You might as well just go buy uh, anything. I mean, it, 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 you might as well have a baseball bat once those 20 rounds are gone. So make sure that you have the ammo in stock for training and for, you know, God forbid should we need it long term. Best place I know to do that is BulkAmmo.com. Check them out today. Next up, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Best way to do that, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on the appropriate links there. Make sure you get involved with our forum. Tiffany from the Gear Shop got with me. I forgot to put the link in yesterday, but we got some new cool power cord stuff in from the power cord guy. And uh, we also have, uh, right now, 1,750 of the AOCS copper medallions. And we have them in stock. They're not shipping from the men. They're shipping directly from us. So some of the shipping hiccups that happened last time will not happen this time. There's only 1,700 of them. These things sell out really, really quick. They're very, very affordable. They're beautiful. They're a great collector's item. They're a great store of value, and they're a great way to share the message. 
of the Survival Podcast and of Sound Money because they feature both the podcast on one side and the website, The Real Truth About Money, and the ebook that's there on the other side. So check out the gear shop today. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive members available, uh, exclusive members. You get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and you support the show at about 20 cents an episode. Also remember, if you are uh, law enforcement, military, or Peace Corps active due to your prior service, send me a few details about your uh, position or position you had, where you were, your job, that type of thing. Not a whole uh, a whole diary about it. Just you know, I was you know a 63 Sierra, and I was stationed in you know I would say I was a 63 Sierra stationed in Panama, served from you know, 1989 through 1993, that type of thing, and uh, and that'll kind of give me a feel for who you are, and I'll go ahead and give you that military discount. Uh, with that, we do have the housekeeping wrapped up. I also wanted to give you guys, before we take your uh, your calls today, I want to give you an update on a couple public appearances that you're going to be able to see me at. I previously mentioned that I'm going to be at the Denver Self-Reliance Expo. That's going to be September 16th and 17th in Denver, Colorado. I'll be keynote speaking there alongside uh, Dave Canterbury. That should be a great uh, a great event. But uh, I talked to the uh, the producer of the show, Rob, the other day, and he's uh, asked me to commit to going to Salt Lake City, Utah on October 7th and 8th for the one they're doing there, and I will be there as well. So uh, I will be at Denver, Colorado, September 16th and 17th at the Self-Reliance Expo, and I will then be in Salt Lake City, Utah on October 7th and 8th at the Self-Reliance Expo. I've had a lot of people get in touch with me. Can you schedule a dinner with me or something like that? Um Especially with Denver, I am really up in the air right now with a lot of things. Uh, there's going to be some t television network people there that want to speak to me. We have a, uh, a dinner already arranged by the producers of the uh, of the workshop of the of the expo uh, for one night. So I really can't commit to anything like that. What I'll tell you is, if you come there, uh, we can definitely talk to you during the event and when there's some time after the event. If I'm not indisposed, I'm happy to maybe get a group together and maybe go have a beer at a bar or something like that. But I can't commit to individual things like that because of the nature of what's going on um, there and the number of people that are trying to get to talk to me. So just wanted you to know that those uh, those two events will be going on. I will be there. I'll be very accessible at the events themselves. Please don't hesitate for a second. You'll see our booth. We have a really awesome kick-ass banner being made. We have some special T-shirts being made that we'll be making available there. And uh, we're putting together a bunch of content, some video content and some other things on uh, jump drives, little jump drives that we'll be, uh, we'll be selling at our booth at the Self-Reliance Expo in Denver, Colorado, and Salt Lake City. I'll put a link to that today. Make sure you come see me there if you can. I'd love to meet you at one or the other events. And with that, let's go ahead and start taking your questions, and let's uh, go ahead and take that first question today. Hi, Jack. This is Derek in Dallas. Just want to respond about the vine borers and let you know what I've done. This is my first garden, and I'm growing sugar pie pumpkins. And I started noticing the eggs, and for those who don't know what they look like, they're little lenticular-shaped eggs, maybe about a millimeter in size. Uh, they're kind of a brick-red color. And uh, first I was taking them off with a knife, um, but the vines grew too big to the point where it just became problematic to actually pick them over every single day and look for them. So what I started doing is... Um, I look for all kinds of possible methods of dealing with them naturally, and one of the first things I found was something called spinosad or spinosis, and it's a bacteria that you can spray on the vine that is activated on ingestion. So if they start to bore in, uh, they'll eat it, and then it takes about a day or two and it kills them. 
but I also wanted to do something, uh, to, you know, to make sure they didn't get in the first place. And that's when I discovered uh, Trichogramma wasps. And uh, they're about a millimeter in size. And one of the first things they do when they hatch is they go out and they parasitize the eggs of the vine borers. And you can get about 3,300 eggs for about $5. And uh, they're very effective against all kinds of other pests as well. And you'll know when they are working when you start finding the vine borer eggs and they turn to this very dark red or almost black color. And for about every vine borer egg, you get another 50 wasps. Uh, they're really good, and I've noticed that the eggs that they didn't get, as the vine borers started to bore in, I have about three spots, the bacteria ended up killing them. So, so far I've been working out pretty well, and I use some of the diatomaceous earth as well, as you suggested. I uh, hope that helps. Um, thanks for the show. Well, good stuff there. Um, let's talk about those little uh, those little wasps here for a second. Um, folks may be trying to figure out how to find those, or, or I think you got the name a little bit mispronounced, and I mispronounce words all the time, so no big deal. But just if you're trying to look it up, I believe it's Trichogamma, not Tripto, but Trico. Um, if you want to look them up online, it's T-R-I-C-H-O-G-R-A-M-M-A, Trichogamma. And they're cool little guys, man. And, yeah, they do a lot of parasitizing of a lot of different uh, pests. So definitely something worth having around and something worth releasing at the right time of year. And most of the places that uh, that are out there that you can order organic controls from sell beneficial insects. And, and these are a great one to uh, to make sure are uh, are part of your ecosystem. And I think if you do it a couple years in a row, you'll probably get a natural population of them built up. And, uh, you know, you may have them around in your area already, but they're little bitty guys and they're cool. Um, on the, uh, I, it's, you said spinosis, and I guess that might be the term for the, uh, for the actual uh, uh, underlying bacteria, spinosis. If you're trying to find it for control, what you'll look for, the uh, kind of the, uh, the trade name for the product itself is spinosad, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D. And it's something I haven't used yet, but I am going to order some, and I'm going to try it. I always have problems with um, with uh, cabbage flies on broccoli, and I've got some broccoli g just getting started now, going into fall, and I'm sure they'll be here again. And I also have some, uh, I got rid of all my summer squash. I pretty much cut it down, except for the Trombuccino zucchinis that are still producing for me. But my winter squashes are getting really yellowed leaves and all from, uh, not squash vine borers, but squash bugs. So I'm going to buy some of this stuff and give it a shot. I've been researching it. Whenever anything new comes out and they say it's safe and it's you know usable for USDA organic and all, I always worry that it's still going to have some really bad effects on some beneficial insects and things like that. Uh, this seems to be pretty solid because there is a potential for it to cause harm to your beneficials. But if you apply it at the right time, uh, when their insects are not very active, it gets taken into the plant, in through the soil, the roots, and through the leaves themselves. And once that's done, you have about two weeks of protection, and it only affects an animal or a, a, you know an insect pest then if that animal consumes part of the leaf and is supposedly completely harmless to humans. So my jury's a little bit out on it, but I know that. Most of the people who have used it have have been very, very happy with the results, and it seems to be a safe, effective control mechanism. On any kind of control mechanism with insects, I always say use as little as you have to to get the job done, and I would say the same with this. 
But I actually think this may be a better option than neem oil. And neem oil is something I used quite a bit in the past with, with some successes and some failures. So I'm going to give this stuff a shot. Anybody who's been using uh, Spinosad, let me know how it's been working for you. If you have any information further about it, let me know. But I would agree it should be effective on squash vine bores because the plant takes it in. And if the, squ if the vine borer, even if he doesn't get enough of it when he bores into the plant, once he's inside there munching away at the, the stems, he should get a good healthy dose of that stuff and die a horrible death. And I believe that uh, of all the pests out there, the vine borer deserves the most horrific death possible. I also heard from somebody recently that told me that I was probably right about the black ants helping me control. Uh, my squash vine borer problem, maybe not going in there and getting the borers that made it in, but uh, that black ants typically will eat uh, squash vine borer eggs, so that, that might be another thing. I tell you what they don't eat, they don't eat squash bug eggs, apparently very little eats squash bugs, but uh, they're a lot easier to control. So thanks for that call, let's take another one. Hi Jack, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have an old deck that I tore down. And it's, it was made out of two by six pressure treated wood. Uh, it's really old. It's kind of was falling apart, but the wood still would be usable for like a raised bed garden. Um, I was wondering if about the, the pressure treated part of it is that bad for the garden? Is that something I should be concerned about? Should I just not use it for the garden at all? Uh, what are your thoughts? Thanks. Bye. Okay, I'm going to upset some of the health freaks out there now, but I'm sorry. I'm just going to give you the facts on this. Uh, treated lumber is treated with CCA, and that is chromium, copper, and arsenic. Uh, copper is not really a problem. Uh, copper is uh, actually a beneficial mineral, unless and it's used in excess. Uh, chromium is toxic, but it's not that toxic, and then generally only if we inhale it. Uh, the chromium that you've heard about in water is a chromium derivative. It is not just plain old chromium. Uh, in fact, uh, so you're, you're really not going to have any issues there. The only thing in that stuff that's of real danger is the arsenic. And I want to tell you something about arsenic. It's everywhere. It's in your food right now, no matter how pure your food is. There's arsenic in just about all soil on some trace level amounts. Now, adding more of it's not really a great idea, and there is a significant leaching of arsenic out of CCA lumber in its first year. So if you wanted to build a raised bed with uh, CCA lumber, the best thing to do would be to set the wood someplace in a, in a configuration where it's not going to have real problems with warpage, Uh, and leave it out in the elements for a year, and you'll leach out, you know, put it somewhere wherever it leaches. It's not going to leach where you're going to then grow your garden, or you just kind of wasted your time with it. Uh, let it leach out. And after that, you can be pretty assured that there's really nothing to worry about, and any trace amounts of arsenic contributed to your soil are so small and are going to move so slowly through the soil that they're not going to really change much of anything, and you're still going to have a little bit of arsenic in your food, and you're not going to die. When you're using an old deck that's been sitting around for that long, if that wood's salvageable and usable and you want to make raised beds out of it, go ahead, don't worry about it. There's not going to be any problems there. Personally, personally, I am not a big fan of uh, pressure-treated wood or uh, any kind of treatment on wood for my raised beds. So this is a case of this is what I say and then this is what I do and it's a little bit more of what I do than, than what I say. 
when I just built my raised beds, I used completely untreated lumber. And people say, oh my God, it'll rot out. Yeah, it'll rot out in about four or five years. And, uh, as cheap as two by sixes are, I'm, you know, not really worried about that. And by then I may just take down the sideboards anyway and go to a standard raised bed. Hopefully by then the dogs are trained to stay the hell out of my garden beds. Because the only reason I did boxes in the first place is it pretty much keeps the dogs from walking through my garden. Um, but I wouldn't hesitate for a second to use wood that's more than a year old. Uh, when you're talking about CCA, this is not like using uh, railroad ties, which are treated much more heavily uh, with much more harsh chemicals. Uh, we had a question about that before. So I would go ahead and do it. I wouldn't worry about it for a second. And if you grew some food and put it on my plate, I would be happy to eat it. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hello, Jack. This is Ian calling from England. I have a comment and a question for you. Uh, just listen to show 708 where you answered gentleman's question about nuclear, biological, and chemical terrorism and how it's the actions that we're not expecting that hurt us most. Sadly, a few hours after you recorded that message, uh, nearly 100 people were killed in Norway uh, by a lone bomber and lone gunman. So, unfortunately, you were right there. Now, my question, you also in the same show uh, spoke about using diatomaceous earth to control critters and bugs in the garden. We have a garden, we have chickens, we have vegetables, but my wife loves English roses, and uh, we have a lot of aphids. And we have a high population of ladybirds, ladybugs, that uh, do a very good job of controlling these. Uh, but does diatomaceous earth harm ladybugs? And if so, is there a more targeted way we can apply it um, to prevent uh, causing them harm and maintain that nature's balance? Anyway, just to let you know, you're coming over loud and clear here in England. Keep up the show, and thanks for everything you do. Bye-bye. Well, first, that shows you the uh, how long ago these calls are coming from, like I said, about a month ago. And, of course, that was the uh, the tragic shooting that happened over there. And it's it's really a shame that that happened. It's one of those things that, you know, when you're right about you you have no joy whatsoever in being right uh, about that type of a danger coming to fruition. But it is always, 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 always the case that when we have these major tragedies, they're never what they were last time. And, and I think that's the big problem about the way that our, our government is infringing on rights in the name of stopping uh, disasters in the future they're they're fighting yesterday's yesterday's attack and, and tomorrow's attack is going to be completely different and i think that we need to really work to preserve our liberty and of course there would have been no one over there in norway to uh to halt this action no private citizen armed um uh to uh to to take it because anybody that was legally following the law uh, of course which criminals don't worry about doing wouldn't have been a concealed carry holder in norway so it's a shame that that happened and uh it's a shame when it happens anywhere, including here, and we do have these things happen from time to time. And that's why I think as many people as possible should uh, have the right and exercise the right to carry and be prepared to uh, intervene at any time. That doesn't guarantee us anything, but it's probably a bigger insurance policy than another law. On your question about DE and ladybugs and aphids, the, the DE is an indiscriminate killer. It is completely harmless to mammals and birds and people, and you can eat it. And it, it, there's no toxin or poison to it at all. 
But if you are a creature with an exoskeleton or some invertebrates and it gets into your skin, it literally dehydrates you from the outside and kills you in a horrible, disgusting way. So if it gets on ladybugs, it will kill them the same as it will kill an aphid. If you have tons of ladybugs uh, in your garden, I would let them handle the aphids and I would continue to encourage habitat that encourages ladybugs. I would maybe release more ladybugs, but I certainly wouldn't douse the aphids with DE because that's the exact place the ladybugs are going. Um, you can use a very mild insecticidal soap if the aphids are getting a little bit too uh, too much even for the ladybugs that you have. And what you want to do then is you want to you know inspect the area where the aphids are, make sure there's no ladybugs around, spray them. Uh, insecticidal soap pretty much kills on contact. Especially aphids are really easy to kill. Uh, if you really want to be safe with it, you could even, once you've sprayed your aphids, uh, give the plant a good misting with plain clean water right afterward and, and, and remove the residue. Uh, that's probably not going to be a problem anyway. But I would not use DE for aphid control if you have a healthy population of ladybugs because you're going to harm your ladybugs. And that's going to make your aphid problem worse. So... DE is something I use in very specific spot applications. Uh, for instance, I may use it on the uh, on the stalks of something that's being uh, terrorized by cutworms. And I may use that uh, just until those seedlings get large enough to where the cutworms are no longer a problem. Or uh, with squash vine borers, I have at times used them around the uh, the base of the uh, of the the vine, right? Maybe for the first couple of feet, and dusted it, and you know during the high bore activity. That's about all I do with DE. Great question and a great point on a tragedy. Uh, thanks for that. Let's go take another call. Hey Jack, this is Jesse from Denver. I wanted to share a story with you about how keeping your ears open and being a little bit pushy can be uh, a very good thing. Uh, this happened like a year or so ago. I was at a 7-Eleven store buying a cold drink, and uh, I was the third person waiting in line. Uh, at the head of the line, there was a kind of a young dude, and he was paying for his purchase in quarters, which I didn't think was anything strange. People do that all the time. But as he walked out, the cashier got this kind of funny look on his face, and he was, like, looking down into his hands where he was holding the coins. And he said something weird, like, um, that he thought the coins were fake. And he started shaking the coins like he's about to roll some dice. He's shaking the coins in his hand, and I could tell from the sound, just the jingling sound, I can tell that they're silver quarters. So I kind of, like, I don't push past, but I kind of walk uh, around the guy who's ahead of me in line and I, I hold in my wallet in my hand and I take out some paper and I tell the cashier I'll buy every single coin that that guy just gave you because I knew uh, that it was valuable anyway the cashier was a little confused but he gave me the coins uh, so it turns out for $2.50 I got 10 silver quarters which at today's prices in silver is over 40 bucks uh, so like I said just being aware of what's going on around you can be profitable. Anyway, thanks for the show. 
Well, interesting, and it makes me think of two things you didn't mention. One, how far have we come that, that most people don't even know what the hell a silver quarter is anymore? You're sitting there with a handful of them. You know, anybody with a brain, especially working a job like that, not making that much money, would realize the windfall that just came in and would, uh, would, uh, pony up, you know, if it was ten bucks, ten bucks for ten bucks worth of silver quarters, man, I probably was about four or five dollars or something like that. But, uh, it, it's just funny to me how many Americans don't even know what the hell a silver quarter is anymore and would think that a silver quarter is fake when in fact modern quarters are far more fake than silver quarters. Uh, remember when we had uh, Tom on, Tom Coetz from the Volley the Blonde Show, he said basically that when we went from silver coinage to regular coinage, it was a default. It was an inability to continue to supply money based on a silver backing and it was a default of the currency. Uh, it happened of course in uh, 1964, uh, 1965. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing that springs to mind is, where'd the guy get the quarters from? You know what it was? It was some kid that raided like his grandmother's or his mom's, you know, stash and was an idiot and was out. And so he didn't know what they were either. And he probably stole them from a family member or a trusted friend. You know, they found a box of coins and like, oh, okay, yeah, there's some quarters here. I uh, thought he was like stealing pocket change. So, um, the intelligence level of the average American continues to fall. I mean, when we talk about history, uh, and I understand people not really knowing a lot about things that happened two or three hundred years ago, but the 1960s, okay, we're talking, what, 40, 50, 60 years, you know, into the time frame that silver coinage, and, and I mean, I don't know, I mean, when I was a kid in the 70s, Everybody knew what silver quarters were. People were still pulling them out of circulation under Gresham's law uh, in the 70s. And up into the 80s, it wasn't that uncommon to find some silver coins. My grandmother worked as a waitress in the early 80s um, when, when, they, when we all moved down to Florida for a while. And I think she basically just wanted something to do. The, my grandfather was still working and... Uh, And she, you know, just didn't want to be around the house all day, so she took this job as a waitress, and she worked, you know, four hours a day, four days a week, or something like that at this diner. And uh, I remember always counting her tips with her, and a lot of it was in change. And we would always seem to find three or four or five silver coins on a weekly basis, straight out of circulation. So, if we go back to the '80s, we're talking, you know, the '90s. You know, we're talking 20 years. So I guess people in their early 20s don't know what silver coins are anymore. And uh, the guy that you uh, you saw spend them, I'm thinking most likely stole them from a family member. And uh, the clerk didn't know. It's kind of sad. But uh, be on the lookout for them. It doesn't happen a lot, but they're still out there. I'll tell you the story of how I found some a few times. There was one of those coin machines, like a coin-o-matic or whatever at a grocery store we used to shop at in Texas. And you would just dump your coins in there and lift this slot, and they would go down in there, and it would make up a receipt. The store would pay you the money for your coins, uh, minus like an 8% surcharge or something, which I think is dumb because the bank will give you 100% of the value, and most banks have coin counters. You can throw it right in your bank account, but whatever. So I'm sitting there one day, and my wife's paying, and the, the clerk is just an, an amazingly slow. And I walk over, and I notice that the little thing you lift up, the whole thing will come up, and there's like a sorting. So I'm just curious. I want to know how they work. So I open it up, and I look in there, and there's like a handful of silver change in there. And I'm thinking, it's not stealing. It doesn't belong to the store. They didn't pay for it. The guy left it. It's just sitting here. The guy that runs the machines is going to come and take it, and they never even paid for him. So I took them. So I started looking, and I was finding 
um, you know, two or three of them a week whenever we did our, you know, actually we only do our grocery show about every two weeks, so about two or three every two weeks. And uh, when we left, they were still occasionally showing up. And what it was is the grate that sorted them, because they weighed differently, they just sat on top of it. So I know some of you might be going, Jack, you took them. I I, I can't see a reason not to. I look at it this way. Remember when we used to have pay phones? And a lot of times if you saw a payphone, you'd walk up and check the little change thingy. And if there was change in there, you'd take it. Nobody saw that as an issue. I saw that the same way. Some of you may have been starkly de depressed in, in Jack now. But if you're not, if you ever happen to run across one of those machines, again, some of them, it's not just the part you lift up, but the whole thing comes up. And uh, I'm standing right there in the store. Nobody ever seemed to care. So I, I can't see how there was anything wrong with that. Somebody will write me today and tell me what an evil person I am for stealing silver change from a machine that didn't pay for it and from a person who left it behind. But I think I'll still sleep pretty good tonight. And now you know how to find silver two different ways. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Ryan from Washington again. I was having a uh, political discussion with... Uh, friend a couple of weeks ago and somebody said something today that jogged my memory everybody always quotes Eisenhower in his farewell uh, State of the Union when he said the military industrial complex but it was pointed out to me when I was in middle school that there's a second warning in that and the second warning is about the education system and how it bec it's become uh or how he saw it becoming this engine of government where you've got all these government subsidies coming in and it drives it and it self-sustains. And I, I find it amazing coming out of academia and actually working in academia that this is one of those things that people just blatantly ignore. So anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there for you. Uh, thanks for the show and have a good day. Well, I've mentioned before that my family has connections to General and President Eisenhower on both sides. My uh, grandfather, having served under Eisenhower, uh, is a chief warrant officer in World War II. And uh, my, uh, my father-in-law, on my wife's side, um, having uh, actually received, not him, but his father received a medal from Eisenhower for his work in World War II as part of the underground in, uh, in helping uh, persecuted Jews escape uh, execution. In fact, um, that gentleman, who I never had the honor to meet, actually was eventually captured. There's a book about him called Cappy Marie, which was his call sign in the underground, so it was why they took so long to find him. He was a Dutch police officer uh, who ret retained his position as a Dutch police officer during the Nazi occupation, and that made him very very effective and very difficult to find because they were looking for a woman. Well, they eventually did capture him, and he was being held, and... Um, he was uh, slated for execution, and he was in in, uh, in in jail with this Catholic priest. And the priest had made a, rose, a rosary out of straw he had pulled out of a mattress and beads he had made out of mud on the floor and a little wooden cross he had carved. And um, we have a picture that we're hoping that that's like the only thing I wish to inherit uh, from my wife's other family when my father-in-law passes on. There's a picture 
of his father receiving a freedom medal from General Eisenhower along with uh, the, the medal itself and this rosary in a frame. And it's uh, the rest of the family can have any money or anything of value. That is the only thing that I want to preserve. So with that, I have a very big affection for Eisenhower. He's one of my favorite presidents, and he's one of my favorite uh, people from military history. Uh, and he's one of the few people that I actually trust that ever rose to that office. I'd say I trusted Eisenhower's words more than I trusted Reagan's words. So when I heard this call, I thought, really? Because I don't know what you're talking about. And this morning, I was late getting the call start, the show started because I sat and I read and listened to the entire speech. There's a site I'll link to, and you can listen to it and read it at the same time because it's in text and audio. And um, the only thing I can find there that seems to, um, to, to belay this is, and I'll read the paragraph before it and the paragraph after it to you, and, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, so this is midway about through the speech, and it's right after the warning about the military-industrial complex. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex, the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that the security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It has also become formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the discretion of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, a free university, historically the foundation of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partially because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The project allocations and the power of money is ever-present and, and is gravely to be regarded. Um, when I look at that, I don't see so much of a warning about public education as a whole, and maybe that's why it doesn't get discussed. I see it more a warning about the funding of the research so that Eisenhower is not necessarily concerned that this public institution might be teaching kids algebra or whatever. It's the research departments that are being held hostage by and used by the, uh, the, the military. And I think today he would probably tell you the same thing is being done in the agricultural community by companies like Monsanto. And I, I, I guess that as I read it the second time now, I, I more understand the caller's point uh, that, that Eisenhower, again, being a man ahead of his time, has actually called this uh, to the core exactly what it is, where it's not so much the cost to the American people, which is a big part of what Eisenhower seemed to be concerned about, but the holding hostage of fact. 
Indeed, I would say that a lot of the so-called global warming fact, and I'm sure I'm going to upset some people today with that, but I'm not going to go deep into it, is being held hostage because of where the funding comes from. Uh, I would say that that's probably the case in many instances, definitely agricultural, definitely military. And if you are the one writing the checks, you get to dictate what gets done with the money. In some instances, with a free market, that is, in fact, a good thing. Uh, but in, when it comes into education, and specifically uh, public institutions of higher learning, um, I think it's a real, uh, real concern as well. So if I needed another reason to have an affinity with uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, I just got one. Caller, thank you for that. Uh, I've heard that speech many times, and I think every American should listen to it at least once, and I will link to it today. Um, but that was something I had never picked up on before. Uh, I had always, like most people, I think, focused on the actual danger of the rise of the, the mill complex. So thank you for that, and uh, I hope everybody learned something today. Let's go ahead and take a, another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Kit from Tulsa, Rail Dog on the forums. I have a question for you about hugel culture. I've got a friend who has back problems, and we're looking at putting in some raised beds, like really raised beds, where she doesn't have to bend over to work in them. And I was thinking that the hugel culture out here would be ideal for this to fill up the bottom parts of the beds with some rotting wood. I guess what my real question is is, is that if we don't have the swale pipe set up or if we set up something that's got these beds that isn't being you know fed from the sides by swales um, do you think that it will work as well or should we be looking at trying to set up these beds on contour to to be able to get the same effect uh, anyway thanks for all you do Actually, I'm surprised. I don't know where you came to the conclusion from anything I've said or Paul Wheaton has said one on the show that the two required each other or that one required the other. Hugo culture is a standalone system. And, of course, if you terrace and, and build hugo culture beds, they're great. And if you create swales and build hugo culture beds on the downhill side of your swales, great. You're going to increase the effectiveness um, but generally speaking, most people that build hugo culture beds don't build swales and don't do terracing. The reason Sepp Holzer does terracing is because he's on a mountain. And if you want to put soil on a mountain and not have it erode, then you, you got to do a terrace. That's how it works. So that's why Holzer always does uh, a terracing with his uh, hugo culture beds. But, I mean, countless people are building them all over the place, and you can literally just pile wood on the ground and start building up. And, in fact... It is the better way to do things, not necessarily not digging down. Digging down is fine to some degree, but building high beds with outside walls that come up in more of a hill shape creates less compaction, and that creates more loose, friable soil, and that creates more wicking action. So hugel culture uh, is ideal for your situation. The, the issue, though, for you, though, is with that, that kind of a concept. The whole point of doing that, though, is not just to plant in the top. That people generally plant from the bottom to the top and back down the other side, and they get a larger planting surface, right? If you think about, let's say, if a bed was six feet wide, and it, as it came up from six feet wide, it went up to six feet high. Well, now it's almost like growing vertically because you've got the top of the bed, the sides of the bed, the bottom of the bed. So some of the stuff that you'd grow might still be... Uh, requiring her to bend down, but she'd have all that surface up there, so maybe if someone could help her uh, with the stuff that grows lower down, uh, it would be you know even more beneficial. So 
I wouldn't worry about swells. I wouldn't worry about uh, terracing. I wouldn't worry about any of that when you're doing your hula culture unless you want to add it. So it's not a, one requires the other. It's the two work really nice together when they're put together, but they don't need each other. There's plenty of people out there doing swale uh, farm forestry where they build a swale. They just take the dirt. They throw it on the other side. They put a sill at the end of it. There's no hula culture involved, and everything works great. And there's plenty of people building standalone hula culture beds. Putting the two together, that works great too. So uh, just go ahead and build what you're looking to build and uh, let us know how it works out for you. Let's take another call. Hi, this is uh, Jeff in Dallas. i uh, called a couple of times about this particular question. Uh, actually, I'm looking to buy in some land. And uh, what I was thinking about doing, initially just getting the land first, of course, and then I could start some uh, preparation of the land and eventually build on it. My thought of maybe is to build on it within a year or two of purchase and to put a monolithic structure on those dome homes. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on those dome homes and how safe they really are from tornadoes and things like that. I know since they're built of cement, uh, they are pretty fireproof, uh, obviously termite-proof. Uh, secondly, a couple of comments. Your caller uh, from West Virginia um, he had asked about railroad ties. One good use for railroad ties that we've actually used in the past uh, with some friends, we'd actually built a berm to shoot against uh, for, for the kind of the backdrop for target practice so that we could shoot into those and, of course, pile dirt behind them. Um, and that worked out really well. Uh, the other one is uh, for all the preppers out there who are, are planning to uh, think, you know, they're going to just grow, the, grow a huge garden in the event they need to, definitely start trying it now. I'm having a horrible time with it. Uh, tomatoes are supposed to be relatively easy to grow. I bought a local variety. I've even built a self-watering container. And even with all of that, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a drought here in North Texas, and uh, it is really, really tough. The one tomato I got, uh, one of those uh, worms got it with a little horn on the back, I guess a hornworm. Uh, it was beautiful tomato that literally the day before I planned to eat the daggum thing, uh, the worm decided it was going to beat me to the punch. And since then, I've got nothing but a bunch of flowers, and uh, I'm not having a whole lot of luck. Pepper plants, they're surviving just fine. But anyway, it's really a lot harder than you think, so definitely start practicing now and start kind of learning the ins and outs. Love your show. Thanks. Well, on the dome homes, monolithic dome homes, I mean, I only have so much to say because I've never lived in one. So, I mean, I can only tell you what I know from the same stuff you're probably reading about them. I did look up and find a uh, an account of one being hit directly uh, by a tornado, and I'll link to that article today. And it's uh, it's on monolithic.com. It's probably a good site for you to check out. But it's it, the headline is, Monolithic Dome Home Survives Mili uh, Missouri Tornado. Uh, I'll read a little bit of it to you. It was a very loud, I heard a very loud sound like thunder and that had no intermission. It was just continuous, said Romaine Morgan, about her encounter with one of the many tornadoes that swept across Missouri uh, and other states on May 4, 2003. That afternoon, Missouri had been put on tornado watch, so Romaine, together with her daughter and two granddaughters, their guests, and all their pets gathered in Romaine's uh, monolithic dome home in Goodson, a small rural community in Polk County. We, when that thunder sound started, I told them that there were fu the funnel nearby, but everyone just kept saying it was the only the thunder until my granddaughter, who was watching out of my bedroom window, yelled, "There's a funnel in the yard. It's here." Apparently, it the tornado then slid off the top of my dome and hovered above it for what seemed like a very long time. We had lost our electricity, so 
Uh, we all just sat around in a dark living room speculating, and then it went away. But during the ordeal, Romaine said that everyone, including the animals, remained calm. We were not scared, she said. We were absolutely confident. We always knew the dome was tornado-proof, and that's why I built it. So there's an actual direct hit. So I think they do have a lot of survivability. Uh, the, uh, the railroad ties uh, for kind of banking in a berm for a shooting range, hey, great idea. I can't find any fault with that at all. Um, especially if you if you're in need of that based on you know your terrain and where you're going to be shooting. Um, on the last thing about you know not waiting until you really need gardening to start gardening, absolutely you're going to screw a lot of stuff up as a gardener. Uh, when you start planting things, you're going to have problems and you're going to have pests and things are going to be hard on you. And yeah, tornado tornado worms will eat tomatoes. I've had a lot of people asking me. Uh, tornado worms, tomato worms will eat tomatoes. Uh, ask me about this uh, letter that was in Mother Earth News saying that tomato worms don't eat tomatoes, they just eat the plants, and they're not really a big deal, and just leave them alone, and you know the wasps will take care of them after that. And uh, no, uh, tomato worms will eat tomatoes. Tomato worms will eat jalapeno peppers. They ate mine. They ate, One ate my, an entire uh, mammoth jalapeno pepper down to the stem. Um, and so they will eat lots of things, and I believe they should be eradicated whenever you see them, unless they have the little wasp pupa larva eggs on them. If you see one with little white dots all over its back, it's still eating your plant. Remove it from your plant. Take it somewhere far away from your plant, leave it to die in agony somewhere else, and let those uh, little wasp reproduce and come out and kill more of them. Uh, but definitely I agree with everything that you said on, the, on your advice on the railroad ties and on gardening. Uh, again, on the monolithic dome homes, if, if it's in your budget and it's what you want, I can't find a single fault with the concept. And as far as survivability, there's one, at least one account of a direct impact hit by a tornado. Now, it doesn't say if it was an F1 or an F3 or whatever, um, but the sum total of damage was some trim was off the house. Uh, that definitely means the people inside the home were safe. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tom in Missouri. just want to tell you about a recent situation. My father-in-law was traveling to a town nearby ours, to Buckner, Missouri, to go to a gun shop. Now they went inside, the gun shop said it was open, and the lady who was inside said they were closed today, and she was just there doing the books. So they left. They were immediately pulled over by two police officers who ordered him out of the car, put his friend in handcuffs. When he notified the cop that he had a concealed carry permit, the cop proceeded to yell, he has a gun, and then asked him to take it out. And then the cop takes the gun, ejects a three eighty shell out of the chamber, throws it in the ditch, confiscates the weapon, puts his passenger in cuffs and in the cop car, and then tells him the reason he pulled him over was for a turn signal and a brake light being out, both of which proved not to be true. He's already called the police chief and issued a complaint, but what else should I tell him to do? He wants to just drop it if he gets tickets dropped. I don't know. Seems like something's wrong there. Thanks a lot, Jack. Love the show. Well, first, if, if the account is accurate, it's absolutely unacceptable behavior. You're pulling someone over for no reason at all, clearly. Uh, if, there was, if the brake light and turn signal light were not out, then it's impossible that that's why they were pulled over. They either are or they are not. That should be very, very provable. Um, so if nothing else, there's an unreasonable 
uh, stop there. There's no, there was no reason for the stop. It doesn't sound like things were conducted very well. I, I do understand how law enforcement officers become concerned once somebody announces that they are a carry holder. Uh, but you know what? People that are going to shoot you don't tell you, hey, look, I'm a concealed carry holder and I'm carrying. That's the whole reason for the uh, requirement to announce in, 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 in many places. And there's actually some uh, movement to repeal that, to make it not required that you tell an officer that you're armed. If you're a concealed carry holder, you have every right to be carrying in the first place. I do think at the point that you're being frisked or whatever, I would probably announce anyway because they're going to find the gun. And if you don't announce, then it's like you're trying to hide it or something like that. Uh, as far as what to do, okay, file the complaint with the chief. What did you hear back? Is anything being done? Are these officers being reprimanded? Is internal affairs looking into it? I mean, just complaining is not enough. You have to follow up and make sure that something's being done about it. And if nothing's being done and you're not satisfied with it, I would start getting a hold of local affiliated news stations and saying, This is what happened, and I would tell my story publicly, and I would bring public pressure to it, because that's the only way shit like this gets addressed. Now, this is all assuming that everything's exactly the way you told me, and that means that it's exactly the way your dad told you, and this is how it came out. Now, when I put on my thinking cap and think about what probably happened here, do I think a cop and his buddy were just driving around one day and said, hey, let's take out a gun store and see who comes out of a gun store, and uh, we'll stop them, and then we'll, we'll see if they bought something that they weren't supposed to buy, and they just did that because that's what they were doing. No, I don't. Um, the gun store had an open sign, but yet they were closed, and there was just a lady doing bookkeeping. My gut is... And this does not make the actions of the officers right, but my gut is that that store was being watched for um, some reason, that there was a belief that they were selling things under the table or conducting illegal transactions or selling illegally modified weapons, and they knew the store was supposed to be closed, and they knew that the store still had an open sign on it, and they maybe had been paying attention to what was going on there, saw your father and his friend go into the store and come out of the store and stop them under the assumption that they were going to be able to make this sting work out. That's my gut because it doesn't make sense even for a crappy cop to just pull someone over because they've walked out of a gun store. Uh, that's going to cause all kinds of stink. And so that's my gut as to what's going on. But I would definitely... At a minimum, beyond the complaint, I'd be calling every day, what's the status of my complaint? Have these officers received additional training? Have they been formally reprimanded? Do you plan on doing that? Uh, no. Can I speak to someone in your internal affairs department? Uh, and if you don't get satisfaction that way, I would involve the media. That's what they're for, to bring light on this shit like this. But you better be damn sure that the story is what the story is. Uh, because... I'm not one to throw every cop under the bus, and I'm not one to, to put every cop on a pedestal. There's good and bad. There's good priests, and there's bad priests. So there's definitely good cops and bad cops. Stories sometimes don't line up because one side is lying. So stories sometimes don't line up because one side has a completely different viewpoint than the other. Sometimes we have a conflict of the way facts are reported, and sometimes we have a conflict of the truth. Uh, but make sure whatever you do and whatever you go forward with is 100% the truth. That's the best I can do on this. Again, dude, I'm not Yoda. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Lisa from Ohio. I wanted to thank you for encouraging me to garden. Because of that, I got involved with a community garden at my local women's shelter this year. 
Oh, now I only I have a, a garden that is better soil than I have in my yard, and I have an easy way to donate things that when the garden is producing too much. A question I had is someone at my local farmer's market said that you can only plant pumpkins in the same space every three years, and if you let them rot there, it's every six years. Can you tell me, is this true, and do you have any other hints on crop rotation I should be aware of for next year's garden? Thanks. Well, one, I think it's really cool that you got involved with the community garden. I think it's really cool that you are uh, uh, donating some of the stuff that you can't use to the uh, the woman's shelter that's providing the community garden space. And I'd like to see more organizations do this. I think they'd be surprised at how many people might uh, spend a few bucks and consider it a donation for some space, and that can be used to help out, and that how many of those people are going to produce more than they're going to use and, and donate it into the shelter itself. And I think that... Uh, that would be a good way to help people out that are there. I think one of the big things we've discovered is we've had so many tales of, of people uh, contacting me about veterans returning and how gardening has made a big impact is that in any stressful situation, any time you're putting your life back together, having a sense of purpose and doing something with meaning is helpful and healing. So uh, thanks for that. Now on the question about the, um, the pumpkins, no, not, no and yes. Here's the deal. Crop rotation is primarily designed because of, of two things. One, if you put a certain plant into the same space every year, it's going to pull the exact same nutrient profile out of the soil year after year after year after year. So even if you're adding some fertility and all, uh, especially on a larger agricultural scale, you're creating a deficit in certain nutrients and beyond just nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, certain micronutrients and all. So... By doing rotation, the, the crops are taking different things and they're adding different things back and we get a better uh, nutrient profile in our soil and we deplete the soil less by doing crop rotation. The other reason is because of pest management. So if I have uh, squash out, like pumpkins, and they have squash bugs on them and the squash bugs lay their eggs and, and, and some of the, 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 the little vermin pupate over the winter, uh, then, that, then I'm going to have more and my population of that pest is going to grow. Specifically vine borers. Vine borers are you know, the worst threat to squash and they, you know, the little worm that crawls out at the end of the season that's damaged your vine, he doesn't turn into a moth. He goes into a pupa state, goes into the soil, and then next year he comes out. So if I grow squash or pumpkins or a squash in the same place year after year after year, I'm going to build up a heavier population of vine borers and any other pests. So that's the two reasons. When you're doing a small garden, you're doing four or five raised beds and you're cultivating them, it's a good idea to rotate, but they're still in such close proximity. And other, I mean, if you can don't grow, grow pumpkins in your bed, somebody's going to do it next to you, and there's a limit to how much rotation is going to do in that type of an environment anyway. If you're using good organic insect controls, you're doing good predator habitat encouragement, uh, and uh, you're doing good soil management, it's going to be much less of a concern for someone with a few beds than it is, but the advice is sound. Skipping a year in between your winter squash pumpkin growing, uh, maybe not three, but just say one year on, one year off, would be somewhat helpful. But if all the people in your community garden around you are doing it anyway, 
it's not really going to be that big of a difference. Sure, the little vine borer moth isn't coming straight up out of your bed right onto your uh, plant, but they never stay in one place anyway. So I would look to more to using, like we had talked about, had people you know mentioned spinosad. Uh, I would look to things like that for insect control. I would make sure you're adding good, healthy portions of compost and good, healthy portions of uh, fer fertilizer from the form of like blood and bone fertilizer and things like that. And I think you'll be pretty well okay. If you have two beds, Swapping back and forth, great idea. If you have three, kind of laddering them back and forth. If you have the space, definitely do some rotation. Um, if you don't have the space, though, intensively manage your soil, use good controls, and you should do okay. There's a big difference in intensively managing 30 square feet and trying to grow massive crops on three or four acres, and the requirements are slightly different because you can do more intensive management. Uh, if you have a plant, though, you keep trying to grow year after year and it keeps being eradicated by a certain pest, then yes, grow something else. Uh, not just for a rotation, but there's just times where you accept the fact that this is just not a good area due to some reason for what I'm trying to grow, and I'm going to find what grows well. Great question. Great thoughts on the community garden. I'd like to see more and more of those in different types of organizations like shelters, like homeless shelters, and what have you. I think it's a great way to do things. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Uh, hey, Jack. Uh, great job on the show. Thanks for all you do. Logan in Colorado. Um, and I'm not really calling for question or calling on the show so much, but um, recently um, at my job, the uh, the owner, who is also the manager, just starting up um, this place, put security cameras uh, back in the kitchen, um, and you know, really where we us workers spend most of our time. And you know, I I kind of get it, but at the same time. I don't really like it. It makes me feel like I'm living life in a George Orwell novel. Um, and I thought maybe I should hang a sign on it that said, for your protection, but since there's cameras, they'd know it was me. Um, but it just kind of got me thinking about, you know, how there's cameras all over the place, and now even in your work. Um, but anyway, thanks for all you do. Um, have a good day. Well, it sounds like you work at a restaurant, and it, uh, to me, uh, an owner of a restaurant having cameras for security in his kitchen, uh, when it's very well known that in many instances employees steal from employers, I, it's not George Orwell. I wouldn't like it either. I would probably choose to work somewhere else. I would probably choose to work at a place where if you hire me, you trust me until I prove otherwise. But I wouldn't come down on the guy for doing it, and I can definitely understand why it's done. And in most stores, uh, especially around cash registers, there's a lot of that done. When I worked in the networking industry, uh, some of the contracts we had for installations were specifically to install uh, networking to cash registers, and part of the installation of the network was for running cameras so that you know that basically the cash register people could be kept an eye on. And it's sad that that's the case, but the bigger the operation, the more of a need for additional security measures like that there are. I don't see this like the government, you know, putting cameras everywhere and having somebody scan them all the time. Generally speaking, in most instances in work environments with cameras, The cameras are there, and nobody sits around. Nobody has time to sit around and watch them all the time. In a big retail store or something like that, they have security that's doing that. But in a restaurant, generally the owner doesn't have time to sit on his ass and watch you on a camera. What he actually does is, okay, when like stuff starts coming up short, 
Then we go back and we review the cameras to see if somebody was stealing from the till or if customers constantly complain that something's going on, just like the one we saw I saw on a TV episode where there was one of the cooks doing something nasty into some of the food, and I'll leave it at that, and they were able to catch the guy and actually prosecute him for that. Understand, when you go to work for somebody, and you go work on their property in their environment, you're subject to their rules, even if you don't like them, and you have two choices, work for them and tolerate their rules or go work for somewhere else. Now, I'm not saying I think that's a great thing, but I'm saying that's reality. So this is not George Orwell. It's not. And, it, and to equate it with George Orwell is, is a stretch to say the least, Logan. Um, but what I will tell you is this. There's a reason I made a terrible employee. I don't like things like that. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the last time there was such a thing in my life as a, uh, as a time clock. We had to punch in and punch out or anything like that. And I always tried to you know, work in environments where that just wasn't the case. When you work in sales to a lesser degree marketing, but definitely in sales, um, it doesn't usually work that way because you're, you're judged every, every month on your quota and what are you bringing in. And that's one of the trade-offs for the stress of working in a sales environment. If I make my numbers and blow them away, then you leave me the hell alone and let me do it my own way. And uh, so that's why I kind of chose that career path. And later on, you know, running a company. When you run a company, nobody asks you where you're going or when you're going to be back. Except your, you know, your personal assistant so she can schedule your appointments for you. Um, so if you don't like that environment, then my advice for you, young man, is build your own company and run it however you want to. And I don't say that facetiously. I say that as someone who's done the exact same thing for some of the same reasons. But uh, uh, monitoring your kitchen in a restaurant with cameras, I don't see that as an overreach. Again, if I were you, I may feel the same way and I may not like it. But it's not a violation of your rights. Um, the government constantly monitoring everything we do, that's a rights violation. Security in the workplace against employee theft, which is probably employees screwing off. And I almost used the F word there. Because let me tell you something. I, I want to be very clear about this. As a guy that's employed people and paid people a salary, when you're paying people, and they're dicking around, and they're not doing their freaking job, it's costing you money and not making you any money. You don't hire people so they can sit around on their ass and play Nintendo. right? And I've always tried to run my work environments in a very free-flowing way. I'm not worried about what you're doing every minute. I'm worried about what comes out the other end. If you were in a restaurant, everybody was served, there's never a backup, You know, I'm not concerned. But the minute there is, then I'm going to start taking a look at those tapes. And if you're dicking around when you're supposed to be working, we're going to have a real problem and you're going to be out the door. You know, so that, I mean, that's how I would use something like that if I felt the need for it in my workplace. It would be something that I would only go back to when there was a problem to uncover the reason for the problem. When I managed uh, at the end of things, Neil, uh, at the last place I was before I quit and just did this full time, I had a uh, an ownership stake in uh, several different companies uh, that, that Neil was working with, and one was a technical recru recruiting firm. And he asked me to basically step up as a uh, a sales manager and COO for a few months until some new people came in that we were bringing in to run the company. And I reluctantly agreed to, to do that. And um, you know, the first thing I did was start looking at phone records and how many calls you were making and how long you were on the line and all. Some of the people didn't like that. Well, here was the thing: the people that were making their number. It was like, ah, your calls could be a little higher, but ah, you're doing pretty good. I want to make sure that you're still on target, you're building a sales funnel. That was the whole conversation. But the people that really didn't like it were also the people that hadn't made their number in three months. And I'm going, well, if you're only on the phone 
for an hour a day on average, and your job is to be on the phone and, and, and to, to place people? What are you doing? Well, I'm sending emails. No, 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 no. You're not doing your job. And, and several of them quit. And what was the problem with that? There wasn't one. So what I'm saying is, in a situation like this, scrutiny is usually applied based on the results, especially in the restaurant industry. It's all about service and production. So I understand your concerns, but I also understand your employer's concerns. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Dan in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, I just had my new employee, um, a new employee orientation for a new job here today. Um, I'm working for a local hospital, and uh, you're really going to like this. They basically told us you need to have a bug-out plan in case of disaster. They went through the uh, the hospital disaster plan, and then they gave us a little quiz. Said, so do you have a document package? Do you have a rally point where you where you can meet family? Um, do you have three days of easily preparable food and water, comfort items for kids? Do you have a list of contacts of people out of town that you can get a hold of? Do you keep your car gas tank three-quarters full? Do you have enough cash to get by if banks don't open? Um, do you have a first aid kit? Things like that. They weren't talking about the job. They were talking about the employees individually. So it's my first new job in nine years, so I don't know if that's real common for employers to do that, but I was really glad to see it. And uh, I just hope this, uh, this type of thinking spreads even more. Thanks for a good show, Jack. Bye. Well, I think that's awesome, and it's also the kind of thing that I would generally hear about from listeners if they were experiencing it at work, and I can tell you I haven't heard much about it at all. I've heard a few places that at least paying lip service to it, but um, but most of the time I, I really haven't heard much about it. Hospitals is where I would expect to hear about it, first responder locations, because they're in touch with the reality. I can tell you this. Um, I was just talking about my kind of prior life before TSP working with uh, with my buddy Neil, Uh, and, and several different companies. We were kind of under one holding corp and had all these subcorps underneath it. And uh, we had an HR person who, shockingly, is not there anymore. But, you know, I'm pretty big on preparedness, obviously. And um, I, I brought to their attention the need to have a survival plan for each of the businesses and to at least uh, you know notify our employees of what it is and tell them they should have some basic preparedness, especially just with simple things. I mean, we live in Tornado Alley there in Pennsylvania, and there was a lot of resistance to it. And I was an owner in the company, and there was resistance to it. Well, we're going to get people upset for no reason, and we only have limited resources right now anyway, and do we need to be doing this? And also, in a lot of places, it's still kind of like, you know, we just don't really need to go there. Um, but, yeah, you do. You do. And I think a lot of businesses on the East Coast today and tomorrow and the next day are going to get a real freaking wake-up call. Um, I saved this from to the end because people have probably been wondering, where's Jack on the hurricane that we're about to see hit? Well, I mean, I look at it this way. I get on this show every day and I tell you guys, be prepared. Have a bug out bag. This, whoever put this together at your workplace, by the way, dude, sounds like they listen to my show. Documentation package and rally points for, for bugging out. Uh, that sounds very, very familiar. The terminology there uh, beyond the basic premise. Uh, so that's cool. Maybe you should ask them if they've ever listened to me. And if not, maybe suggest they do. Obviously, they think very similar to the way we do here. But, you know, what am I going to say about your hurricane? Be prepared to leave if you have to leave. Make sure you have food and water. Make sure you have uh, emergency backup sources of power. I mean, come on. It's, it, it, see, and this is the thing that gets me. Whenever something happens, they're like, well, what do we do for this? What do, we, do you listen to the show? 
You do the same thing you always do because of the commonality of disaster. It is always systems of support that fail. And it doesn't mean I won't talk about individual disasters. What we're going to do with this hurricane, for instance, is we're going to watch what happens and we're going to do kind of an after-action review on it and learn the lessons from the people that were prepared and weren't prepared and what that can teach us. I will say this, if you were in the direct path of this thing, this one's no joke. This is a real serious storm, uh, and I believe its effects are already really beginning to be felt in some areas. Uh, the, the current projections have it slamming into the New York City, Long Island, Jersey Shore area, still as a Category 1 hurricane. Uh, because we look at things like Katrina and go, well, that's a Category 5 storm. Was that 3 when it hit, folks? It was more the size of the storm and the flooding than anything else. A lot of New Jersey, New York, Long Island, Maryland, uh, Delaware on the Delmarva Peninsula, a lot of that stuff is a couple inches, a couple feet above sea level. Um, there's going to be real storm surge with this. This is going to be serious. This is not going to be a Katrina-level event. It isn't. But it's going to be bad. And it's in some ways going to be a much broader area of impact. This thing's basically strafing the coast from the Carolinas all the way up to New England. So it's going to lead a long path of damage and outages and things like that. And who knows, maybe we'll save some money because the federal government, maybe they'll be out of business for a day or two and stop spending money for a day or two. That'd be nice. Um, but... I, I will tell you that it is becoming more and more mainstream. If you haven't read my article that I wrote like a week and a half ago, it was called The Tide is Turning, Prepping is Becoming Normal, and it was like 80 people commented and has like 400 and some odd likes on Facebook. So I think it really resonated with people, and uh, I do think prepping is becoming more acceptable and more normal, and I think it's just because people are finally waking up to, how did we get so stupid in the first place? I mean, none of this stuff was a big deal 50 years ago, even. Uh, and, and I think that there was some of the... Some of the uh, the relief felt when the apparent danger of global thermal nuclear war went away and there was a blissful utopia and happiness and all the survivalists were seen as lumped in as the people that were prepared to go underground if there was a Red Dawn event or if there was a World War III with nukes being tossed by both sides. And then people just, you know, once you become complacent, it's very, very difficult and very uncomfortable to accept that you're not as safe as you think you are. Um, so I'm glad to see some more stuff like this coming. And folks, if you're having this in your workplace, if if you're starting to have your workplace talk to you about preparedness and give you ideas and thoughts and tell you to put together a kit, have an evacuation plan, I think it's great, and I'd love to hear about it. So wherever it is happening, let me know, and we'll talk about it on the air. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast to help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.